When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Oftentimes someone will come along and say to me, you know, my knee feels really stiff. It just feels like I could take a grease and oil change and I'd feel so much better. And for a long period of time, people have been using that grease and oil philosophy to do a procedure called visco supplementation. So that's a procedure that involves injections of hyaluronic acid. Typically, and most commonly, that would be injected into a knee joint. This is a substance that's normally within the joint itself and within the synovial fluid of the joint. And theoretically, its properties are meant to be around providing some ability to lubricate the joint, so, such as you might experience in a grease and oil change, or to provide a little bit of shock absorption as well. These are happening incredibly commonly. Again, it depends on which country you're in, but at least in the United States, some reports suggest that one in every seven people receive an injection of these hyaluronic acid as a first-line treatment for their knee osteoarthritis. But... The efficacy and safety of these injections has remained controversial. And so, you know, given the fact that we've spoken before on this podcast about other types of injections that people are having for osteoarthritis, including steroids and platelet-rich plasma, and if you want to go back and listen to previous episodes, please do, we thought it would be important to cover this off. And so on this week's episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Bruno da Costa to discuss these visco supplementation injections, their efficacy, their safety, and his recent important publication in the British Medical Journal. Hello, Bruno. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, no, it's it's absolutely our pleasure. Now, I'd appreciate it. It's very late in the evening for you and very early in the morning for me. So we'll uh, try and keep the conversation <laughs> reasonably targeted, focused again on visco supplementation in osteoarthritis. But before we get into the main content for today, just in an effort to get to know you a little bit better and for the listeners to, I guess, get a little bit more familiar with you, can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like for you? And I appreciate you've just, just moved, so it may, it may be a very different looking day to what it was three months ago. 
<laughs> sure. So I'm, I'm a physical therapist by, by training. I haven't treated patients in a long time because shortly after my physical therapy training, I trained as a medical statistician and did a master's in medical statistics and a PhD in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics. My main focus was to just conduct clinical research. So a typical day for me nowadays, as you said, I just moved here to Oxford, working at the University of Oxford. And so I'm still adjusting to my new life. But usually what I do is I work on my own research, which main focus is osteoarthritis. And because of my background as medical statistician and clinical epidemiologist, I also help others conduct their own research. So I help design their studies. I help with the methods of their studies, how they will conduct the studies, and as well, how they will analyze their studies, because I'm also a statistician. So my typical day is basically in the morning, I try to have protected time, you know, get things done, work on my own studies in the afternoon. That's when I get into meetings with colleagues helping others conduct their research, have meetings with my own students. I teach also clinical research, and I do also have some time that I invest doing editorial work for peer-reviewed journals. Sounds like a wonderfully full day. And has the transition gone well from Toronto to the UK? Yes, it's been great. You know, Oxford is a much smaller city, of course, than Toronto. So it's been a relatively easy adjustment here for, for myself and, and my family. Wonderful. Well, I hope you enjoy your time there and your family as well. Um, Thank you. Bruno, anticipating that the life outside of work might be a little bit different between Toronto and Oxford, but when you're not at work, what do you like doing? Mostly, I like to spend time with my family. So we hang out And here in Oxford, there are several parks. It's very green, even in winter compared to what we had in in Canada. So we spend time and um, together, I like to exercise, do physical activity, and I like reading. So not a lot of different or exciting activities happening. Yeah. And um, how many in your family? It's just myself, my wife, and uh, my son. Oh, wonderful. Well, I hope they're enjoying life in the UK as well. Now, Bruno, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? So I would say I'm a curious person. Every scientist tends to be a curious person. That's why we end up doing research. I'm self-motivated and passionate about what I do. So that helps a lot in academia to get things done. There are several challenges, of course, as you know, in academic research, and that does help. I'm a loyal person, I would say, loyal to friends, family, and, and my colleagues. And I would say I'm tenacious and rather tenacious and determined and again to get things to get things done. I think that's it. It's a bit of a challenge to describe myself and trying to be as honest as possible. But yeah, that this would be the five words I would use. Oh look, they're all wonderful qualities. And if it makes you feel any better, I ask a similar question to every guest that comes along and make them feel probably similarly uncomfortable talking about themselves, which we generally <laughs> don't like doing. Um, <laughs> But anyway, without without further ado, I think we'll get into the main content of today, which is really around this really important topic of visco supplementation. So just to, in an effort to frame the content that will come after this a little bit better, can you just tell us 
what is viscosupplementation and the common types of injections and what they're thought to do in terms of the, the mechanisms of effect? Yes. So viscosupplementation is the injection of a substance called hyaluronic acid inside a joint with osteoarthritis. So basically, a physician would use a syringe to inject hyaluronic acid inside people's joints. So the substance called hyaluronic acid is a substance that naturally occurs in healthy joints like knees, hips, shoulders, etc. And this substance, the main purpose is to help, let's say, cushion the joint. It's a sort of a protective cushion that helps absorb the shock and the impact that we have when we are walking around. And there could be this this sort of a impact uh, between the components of our joints. So it does help absorb that impact. And it also works as a lubricant. So much like oil for an engine, hyaluronic acid helps decrease the friction between different parts of our joint. And by decreasing friction, it helps decrease degradation. So that's the idea behind viscosupplementation. So in osteoarthritis joints, it's believed that there is a decreased amount of hyaluronic acid. So they would supplement the joint with an injection of hyaluronic acid so that people would have healthier joints, basically. And as you alluded to, so there are different types of viscosupplementation. The main different types are what they call a non-cross-linked versus a cross-linked hyaluronic acid, meaning the idea is that a cross-linked hyaluronic acid would last longer inside the joint versus the non-cross-linked, which would have a lower duration inside people's joint. And the other important characteristic of hyaluronic acid is the molecular weight. So hyaluronic acid with a lower molecular weight would have less of this viscoelastic property that we're looking for when injecting or that folks are looking for when receiving viscosupplementation. The higher the molecular weight of the hyaluronic acid, the higher is the viscoelastic property of the substance. And thus it would have more of this protective cushion property that is believed to help joints with osteoarthritis. There are also different brands in the market. Some of these would require one single injection. Others would require up to five injections to complete a cycle of treatment. So, of course, one needs to think, of course, when when talking about injections inside the joint, the more of these injections you have, the higher the risks involved, perhaps in terms of getting some side effects such as an infection or, or local pain, and of course also costs. So the more injection you get, the more you're going to require someone to be doing these injections, and you have to pay for for more hyaluronic acid, etc. And it's, it's a great a great description. I'll just recap some of it and maybe just follow on with a couple of questions themselves. So as as Bruno suggested. Hyaluronic acid or these viscosupplement uh, type injections, hyaluronic acid is a normal constituent or component of the fluid within the joint, what we call the synovial fluid. In general, 
we typically think that these injections may help with that cushioning or the or the lack of lubricant or increased friction within the joint. So a lot of people complain of stiffness and they think that going and having a grease and oil change, so to speak, may help with their osteoarthritis. There's lots of questions around though, and you've touched upon some of them and we'll probably come back to them. But one is around the duration with which the injections actually sit within the joint. Most of the evidence would suggest much of it's gone pretty much within the first 24 hours. And that may differ depending upon the size of the molecule, so the molecular weight of the product. And there's a lot of theories around there that suggest that the molecular weight of hyaluronic acid may play a role in its efficacy. And we'll again come back to that. But just to touch upon the last point that you were making, so some of these involve a series of injections and obviously associated costs. Typically in most clinical circumstances, what sort of cost are we we talking about here for hyaluronic acid injections? I think this would, of course, depend on the country where the treatment is being delivered. But, you know, I believe in the U.S., for example, one could expect to pay at least $1,000 or so for for a whole cycle of treatment. It could be a few thousand dollars even, depending on the number of injections that a person receives. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a helpful qualification because later on, obviously, we're going to get in and talk about efficacy, risk for harm. But I think another important factor to consider in this shared decision-making type engagement is is that of cost. Because at least for a lot of countries, it's not supported by insurance. And a lot of this ends up being at what we call an out-of-pocket cost, so basically the patient's paying. Before we get too much into the study that you've just done, how common is this and what, what joints are commonly treated? Again, it depends on the country. So, for example, uh, here in England, they have what is called the NICE clinical practice guideline, which is recommendations that some experts get together. They look at the evidence and they provide recommendations of you know, what type of treatments people could receive or should not receive for osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. And the NICE, is, it stands for the National Institute of Healthcare Excellence. So they recommended against the use of viscosupplementation. So for this reason, the national health system here gives low priority for funding. So they only use it in very exceptional circumstances that it would fund this sort of treatment. So it's it's not very commonly used here. But when you look at in the U.S., where viscosupplementation is covered by Medicare and commercial insurance companies. It's a much more common treatment and it has become more and more common in the recent years. It has become common to the point where one out of seven patients would receive viscosupplementation as first-line treatment for knee osteoarthritis, which is quite surprising. To be honest, since most clinical practice guidelines would recommend against or conditionally recommend against, and very rarely there would be clinical practice guideline that would support the use of viscosupplementation. So in the U.S., it's supported and it's funded by the healthcare system, and so thus perhaps also much more common. So the type of joints that receive treatment, knee osteoarthritis, I believe, is the most commonly treated joint with viscosupplementation. Hand osteoarthritis could also be a joint that receives this sort of treatment. Hip osteoarthritis 
I believe recently has become less and less common receiving physical supplementation injection. And, and I say that because there is clear recommendation against the use of physical supplementation for hip osteoarthritis because the evidence for this joint really indicates that there isn't much effect there. Yeah, tremendous. That's a great description. And and again, I'll just briefly recap some of that. So as Bruno suggested, most guidelines internationally recommend against the use of visco supplementation. And obviously, despite that, there's a number of countries, and I guess top of that list would be countries like the US, but also to some extent, Japan, it's very common in Japan to inject joints with hyaluronic acid. And most of these injections typically are going into large joints. So there's you know, knees, hips, ankle, shoulders. But as Bruno suggested, most of this relates to knee osteoarthritis, which is, you know, why your paper that you've just published in the British Medical Journal is so important because that tends to focus down on the joint in which it's commonly done. So let's let's get in and talk a little bit about your trial. So I guess in the first instance, what did you do before we get into the results? So what type of study is this? How is it conducted? And then we'll get in and talk about the results. Sounds good. So this is a systematic review. So on a systematic review, we try to identify every single study out there that would meet what we say our eligibility criteria. So we have a list of characteristics that we're looking for in a study. And we go through the the evidence, we go through databases where clinical studies are indexed. And we try to identify all of the studies out there that would meet these characteristics that are of interest to us. And in our systematic review, we also conducted what is called a meta-analysis, which is a, a statistical approach that we use to combine the results across the studies that we identified, that we decided to include in our review, which is simply meta-analysis, simply a weighted average of treatment effects across the studies. So that's what that's what we did a systematic review. Wonderful. And you know, roughly how many trials did you find and how many people just roughly did you did you cover here? So we included about 170 randomized clinical trials which included a total of about 21,000 patients. Yeah, so there's a lot a lot of data here and what what did you find? So we focused our main analysis this was pre-specified uh, that we would focus our main analysis on larger randomized trials with a higher methodological quality meaning these trials were likely to have a lower risk of bias influencing their results so for this main analysis we included 24 large trials placebo-controlled trials in about 9,000 patients. And the main analysis there indicated that we have indeed accumulated a lot of evidence on viscosupplementation for neosteoarthritis, which allowed us to conclude that there is strong, conclusive evidence indicating that viscosupplementation will lead to a small reduction in neosteoarthritis pain compared with placebo. But this difference between the effect of that we see in viscosupplementation and the effect we see in placebo is very, very small. So it's way below what we would consider a clinically significant effect or a clinically significant between group difference 
in treatment effect. Wonderful. Just to clarify a little bit of that. So, you know, oftentimes pain is measured on a zero to a hundred scale where zero is basically no pain and a hundred is extreme pain. What, what was the magnitude of difference that you found here for visco supplementation? Just, just to help people understand and qualify your comment there about this, while it might, might've suggested a difference, how big was that difference? This was approximately, if I'm not mistaken, in zero to hundred was about two, two. millimeter on a zero to a hundred millimeter yeah. scale. So indeed, it's a, it's very very small. Or on a zero to ten scale, it's zero point two. So it's it's a very very small effect indeed. Uh, this is being the the difference in effect between viscous supplementation and placebo. Yeah. And, you know, this obviously varies according to the study and according to the parameters that are used. But for us to say something is clinically important, what and that, you know, basically how, how much would we perceive is likely to be beneficial? What type of magnitude are we looking at there to be able to say, yes, this is clinically meaningful, as opposed to the two millimeters that you found? So what we would call the minimal or the minimally important clinical difference. So that's anything below this effect, it probably wouldn't be noticed by, by patients. It's a difference between group difference of about nine to 10 millimeters. So that's what anything below this, this threshold, patients would likely not notice as anything that is important for them. So yeah. two millimeters is indeed way below the nine or 10 millimeters that we consider the minimum important effect. Great, great. And sorry, I interrupted. I think you were just about to head off and talk about more oh, results. Yeah. No, no problem. Another important finding of our review is that we found also strong and conclusive evidence that there is an association between visco supplementation and serious adverse effects. So basically, there is a, an increased risk of patients experiencing a serious adverse event when receiving visco supplementation compared to those patients that just received placebo. So that was another very important finding that we thought was you know, important to guide uh, a shared clinical decision-making, as you mentioned earlier, David. Yeah. And when, when you talk about serious adverse events, Bruno, what are, you, what are you talking about here? What type of events are we talking about? So we did not have much granularity for many of these studies, but the way this was defined by this randomized trials. So the way this, this trials mainly defined a series of diverse events was, could be anything that uh, relate, led to hospitalization or prolong, prolongation of hospitalization, permanent or major disability, death or any life-threatening event, or some congenital deformation, for example. Of course, this is very broad and we wouldn't expect many of these things to happen related to visco supplementation. So even though we didn't have much of the granularity, I would assume series of diverse events related to visco supplementation could be things that led to hospitalization or some perhaps even major disability, perhaps not permanent, but major disability that left people with decreased physical function for, for a period of time. Yeah. And as you suggest, while they may not be frequent, they are serious. And so it's important to take that into account. And I think the other element here to talk about here is that, you know, at least in most visco supplementation trials, separate from serious adverse events, there is a proportion of patients who do experience 
joint swelling that persists for a period of time after that, uh, which is not infrequent. So, you know, sometimes in the order of about 5 to 10% of people will get a very reactive swelling in the knee that can persist for a number of weeks afterwards. Bruno, obviously that's that's critical. I just want to dig into this because there's obviously been some discussion around mm -hmm. the visco supplementation for a while and its efficacy. And it's a, it is a controversial area in, in large part because it is so frequently used, but the guidelines generally recommend against it. Now, one of the theories here is that the higher molecular weight hyaluronic acid products may have a longer residence time within the joint and theoretically a potentially greater efficacy as a consequence of having that longer time within the joint. In your sensitivity analyses, when you look through your plots, was there any suggestion to suggest that high molecular weight was more or less effective than low molecular weight? That's a very good question. We did look into this and there was no evidence indicating that those visco supplementation with higher versus intermediate or low molecular weight had any difference in terms of a clinical benefit, which does not support the theory indeed that a higher molecular weight could have a better clinical effect. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, simply because I would imagine some of the people that listen to us might not, not necessarily like the message that's coming out and say, well, you've cherry-picked certain studies and excluded ours and focused on those that had larger sample sizes. And so as a consequence, you're not necessarily looking at the whole literature. Can you tell us a little bit about why you've done that? And tell us a little bit about bias and why small studies may not necessarily provide as good quality evidence. A great question. So small studies, they are subject to what we refer to as, you know, in a, in a, in a systematic review, we refer to as small study effects or publication bias. So the small study effects, it's in the, and it's, this has been shown already by, you know, there is empirical evidence showing that smaller studies tend to have, not all of them, not always, but they tend to report more exaggerated treatment effects. They tend to overestimate the clinical effect of an intervention. The reason being many times is that small trials or small studies, they tend to have lower methodological quality many times because they have less funding, they don't have the necessary support to have folks, you know, they're expert in conducting these trials and could help minimize the influence of external factors playing a role in the results of the trial. We, and these external factors playing a role in the results of the trial leads to an error, many times to an overestimation of the treatment effect, which we refer to as a bias. So that's, that's one of the problems of the small studies. The other problem of the smaller studies is what, we said, what I mentioned earlier, the publication bias. So small trials, they tend to have a hard time to successfully be published in peer-reviewed journals. Many, many things have changed in the past decade or so, but still it's easier to publish the results of a small trial if they show a large treatment effect. Those that show very small or no treatment effect, they tend to have a hard time being published. And many times they don't end up being published at all. 
This means that the literature is inundated with small trials that have overestimation of treatment effects. And if you in include these small trials that overestimate treatment effects in a meta-analysis or in a systematic review, the findings of this review will be highly influenced by the bias of these small trials and resulting in, in findings that will misguide or mislead both consumers, both folks living with osteoarthritis or physicians or decision makers, etc. That's why we predefined this and we were aware of this problem because we conducted a 2012 review on viscosupplementation and it was very clear to us already a decade before we conducted this review that the literature in viscosupplementation is inundated by small trials with a lower methodological quality. So we predefined that we would not include these in our main analysis. Yeah, that's really important. And, you know, I think for those people who are out there who are questioning why Bruno's selected particular studies, hopefully that helps to clarify why that was done. And, you know, if you want to dig further into the details, there's some wonderful data within there showing all of these aspects of bias and in particular that aspect of publication biases and, and some plots there that clearly demonstrate where these studies, at least from a publication bias, are sitting and the, the fact that, you know, what Bruno just said, is a strong positive publication bias. So, you know, if you do a positive study, it's much more likely to be published than, than a negative study is likely to be. All right. Now, I'm probably going to do this a disservice, and I'm going to translate a little bit what Bruno's just said and summarize that. But essentially, this, the story that I'm hearing from you, Bruno, is that these viscosupplementation injections, and the main comparator here is against a saltwater or saline injection, do not appear to be effective when we think about its clinical benefit. They have a real risk of harm. They're associated with costs. They're advocated against in most guidelines. So I think that's, is that a reasonable summary of what we've said today? Absolutely. And David, if I may add to this, one thing that I should have mentioned is, you know, if I if I may share my my opinion, why I think it's still a popular treatment. If you look into the clinical effect of viscosupplementation, I believe you know, and we have looked into the evidence. We're conducting another review now that compares different types of intraarticular treatments, not only viscosupplementation for osteoarthritis, and we see that the effect of viscosupplementation is clinically significant. And I don't want to confuse the, the listeners here. So it's clinically significant on its own merit. The problem is what we did here is we compared it to placebo. So on its own, viscosupplementation has a large effect, but so does a placebo injection. Both have large effects. So when you compare the effect of viscosupplementation with a placebo injection, viscosupplementation is better by only very little, as we said before, only by two millimeters on a scale from zero to 100. So that's why perhaps it's still perceived by some patients and some physicians as an effective treatment. Because if you don't compare it to placebo, you will also be experiencing a large placebo effect in that viscosupplementation injection. And by all means, if it's working, you know, that's another question, another debate. But one needs to understand that perhaps that's why there's a perceived effectiveness of viscosupplementation. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's really an important qualification because the placebo effect in most osteoarthritis trials is, is usually quite large. And particularly in the context of these saltwater or saline injections, it's even 
a little bit larger than some of the other placebos that are used here. But, you know, placebos probably don't cost as much as the visco supplements. They're probably usually not associated with as much harm. And depending upon where you are in the world, potentially not as readily available either. Okay. <laughs> so with that evidence base and that summation, Bruno, what would be your... I mean, I appreciate the guidelines that are out there and they've been strong in their recommendation against visco supplementation. But what advice would you be giving to people out there who are considering visco supplementation or who are being told to get a visco supplementation injection? That's, again, a very good question. And I agree with you. We have all these guidelines that were prepared by you know major experts. But if I were to share my humble opinion here, I understand how complex uh, you know it is osteoarthritis treatment and living with osteoarthritis how challenging it is so you know we have individuals living with osteoarthritis who may not be able to receive any treatment that is out there or the main treatments that are out there because they have other comorbidities that keep them from from receiving this treatment such as NSAIDs or non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs and they end up trying to find alternative solutions one of them being visco supplementation so indeed if if someone with osteoarthritis uh, i would say definitely avoid taking this as a first option of treatment if whenever possible do explore with your physician do question, you know, do prepare yourself when coming to talk to your family doctor or your general practitioner. Do come read about it, come prepared to, you know, to ask questions and, you know, things that are important to you and explore other alternatives, such as perhaps topical non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, topical NSAIDs, uh, perhaps as a first line of treatment, other things that could, you know, if it's not contraindicated to you that have shown good evidence that they would work better to treat osteoarthritis pain. You know, when I say informing yourself, I know it's difficult to sometimes digest the scientific evidence out there, but, you know, as we present in this review here, we would say that 37 out of a thousand patients would experience serious adverse event. It's not a very large number. And then we look at placebo, we have 25 out of a thousand patients that experience serious adverse event. And then I think each person would perceive this differently as you know something that they would be willing to take as a risk, an incremental risk when compared to something like placebo. Some would say it's okay. Some would say it's not okay. So informing yourself and, and having these discussions with your doctor would be very important to understand whether it makes sense indeed to receive supplementation as a treatment for your problem. Yeah, that's that's superb because obviously there are a whole range of other treatment options that are available. And I think it's really important when being faced with a treatment decision like this that you come as best informed as you can, both about its likelihood of uh, positive efficacy, its risk of harm, its associated costs, but also most importantly, I think, what are the alternatives here? And there are multiple. So it's really, I think, valuable to take that into account. Now, Bruno, we'll include a link to the paper if people do want to dig further into that in the show notes. So Bruno, I might move on just to the next segment and just ask you a couple of questions that pique my interest and hopefully pique the listeners audience as well. But how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? Nowadays, my learning is very much focused on, you know, what I have as highest demand for my day-to-day job. So, for example, um, 
I have spent the recent years developing my skills in Bayesian methods for evidence synthesis and randomized trials. That's something that I've been using quite frequently in my day-to-day job. So sometimes uh, you have a lot of content out there. And sometimes, depending on what you do, you, you need to dig further and, and reach out to colleagues to understand where and how you could learn about this thing. So for this specific topic, for example, that I mentioned, I, I try to read as many articles that I can about it. I take courses online or in person, and I learn on the job many times by collaborating with colleagues that would be more experienced than myself in a, in a specific topic of interest. So I learned by doing many times as well. Wonderful. Yeah. And it's, I think one of the wonderful aspects of being involved in healthcare is it's, it's a continued evolution of learning. And, you know, I think we all learn something new every day. Yeah. Um, what motivates you to do what you do? It may sound as a cliche, but it's to help people. This is what, you know, first brought me into physical therapy. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't practice physical therapy. I practice very, very briefly. And the reason that I went into research is 20 years ago when I was training in physical therapy, I realized there was much that could be done in terms of research to help develop therapy. Nowadays, things are, are quite different. But back then, there was still much that could be done. So that's why one of the reasons I went into research and thinking, you know, um, I can perhaps reach even a larger number of, of people if I get to find treatments that could help you know, people with their symptoms, help people improve their quality of lives. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity and I, I wish more people had that opportunity to share the joy of providing healthcare to, to the population who's out there. And just in closing, is there any one piece of knowledge, advice or wisdom that you'd like to give for people who have osteoarthritis? You know, uh, I come more from this research perspective, someone that has been working with osteoarthritis research for over 10 years and in, in many different types of, you know, non-pharmacological or and pharmacological treatments for osteoarthritis. The more I learn about it, the more I'm convinced that, you know, it's really what is required as a holistic approach. One should perhaps not whenever possible, not rely only on a pill to improve their symptoms, but, you know, thinking about as much as possible to adapt to their lifestyle, you know, thinking about exercising, dieting, if weight control is required. And, you know, and, I, and the, the beauty of, you know, exercising, eat well, sleeping well, you know, socializing, all of these things, they help, I think, not only osteoarthritis, but different types of chronic conditions. So that's perhaps what I would recommend. Not, do not rely on single interventions or types of treatment, such as visco supplementation, but think of all the, the ways that you could improve your, your symptoms, discuss with your GP or other healthcare practitioner that you work close to and ask them for suggestions as well. That's a fantastic way to close, Bruno, and just really to to reinforce that important concept of holistic care as a way to really promote better health, whether that be for your joint or for the remainder of you as well. Bruno, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us chatting about this really important topic. I think it's something that hopefully a lot of our listeners will learn a lot from and or be better informed the next time they have a conversation about this. 
really appreciate all of what you do and thank you for spending a little bit of time with us. Thank you, David. So one of our great motivations in doing this podcast is to provide you information to better inform you about ways to engage in conversations that will facilitate decision-making. Now, visco-supplementation is quite pervasive in many countries around the world, and a lot of clinicians still use this frequently, and a lot of patients are faced with recommendations by health professionals to get an injection of this lubricating fluid, potentially such as a grease and oil change in the car. Based on the evidence that we've seen today and the evidence that we've known from the literature for a long period of time and what the guidelines advocate for, what we would typically summarize here is to say visco-supplementation has a small effect that's not clinically meaningful over and above what you would get from a placebo injection or salt water injection. It provides a real risk of harm, both the serious adverse events that Bruno spoke about, but also, you know, a substantial proportion of people will get a reactive swelling in the knee following the injection that can persist for a number of weeks. It's associated with substantial cost. And on the back of that, that's why guidelines are typically advocating against the use of these sorts of injections. Do they have effects? Probably, more than likely. Are they more than placebo? Well, based upon this, probably not to a clinically meaningful effect. They do carry with them a real risk of harm and it's gonna cost you a reasonable amount out of pocket in most countries to receive these injections. So I'm hoping this helps to inform you about this management practice, which again, is being advocated for not infrequently. Hopefully it helps to build the chapter of resources that you're accumulating in your mind as you go forward and hopefully get better informed about therapies that are helpful for osteoarthritis. So with that note, I'd like to close today. Thank you again so much for the opportunity to speak with you, your continued support of the podcast. And between now and when we next speak, please do take good care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.